today we're going to be jumping uh, into Matthew chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn right there. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, verse 1 to verse 8. And I just realized I did Luke and Chelsea's wedding and I moved my bookmark <laughs> to mark the passage I was reading for them. So we're going to just flip that back over there. All right, so it starts by saying this. Jesus stepped into the boat and crossed over and came to his own town. So Jesus, like I said, he's been over the other side of the, uh, I think it's the Sea of Galilee. So on one side is kind of this Jewish population. That's his home population. On the other side is more of this kind of like Greek, uh, Syrian uh, population. And that's kind of like enemy territory. So Jesus has been going over there doing some stuff, but now he's ready to come back home. So he gets into the boat and he crosses over. And says, when he arrived, some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. You don't hear that word every day. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. So he looked over and he said to the paralyzed man, Get up. Take your mat and go home. Then the man got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Before we dive in too deep here, I just want to highlight for us the, these, these guys. There's, we don't know how many friends there are, but enough friends to carry a, a paralyzed buddy over to Jesus. And what I find so interesting is, you know, we, we have no background to them. We don't know, you know, why they, they know about Jesus or what experience they have of him. Perhaps they were uh, part of that group of people we read about a couple of weeks ago who were just lined up to be healed because Jesus was doing these amazing things and, and, and they experienced that. Maybe they just heard about him, but for whatever reason, they had some sort of experience of Jesus and they recognized that they were completely and utterly incapable of meeting their friend's need. But in this moment of desperation, they think, I know someone who can, and they bring their friend to Jesus. We use this word a lot in kind of our West Village lingo. Uh, we have, every, every kind of organization has like that insider language, and, and we are super guilty of that. Um, so if you are new here and you hear words like CG, and you're like, what the heck is that, or DNA groups, or GLR, or any of that stuff, uh, I apologize. Uh, come find someone, and hopefully they know what it means. Uh, they might not, but... <laughs> um, but one of the terms that we use often in West Village is, is this uh, term gospel saturation. It's this vision that we believe that God has that every single man, woman, and child on the face of the earth would daily encounter him through his people. What we see here is a picture of gospel saturation. That there's these people who have experienced Jesus. They've experienced some way that he has impacted their life, and they know that this friend is in desperate need of that same impactful life-changing experience. And so they bring him to Jesus. And I think if you're here today and, and you would call yourself a Christian, that you often feel, especially if you're part of our church, this compulsion to live your faith in such a way that people take notice and to regularly 
explain that you're not just doing this, but that you're doing this because of what you have experienced in Jesus. And the beautiful thing is, is as we go out with this vision of gospel saturation, we will inevitably meet people who have needs that are far above our capacity to do anything about. When I, uh, a couple years ago, I was serving as a youth pastor um, in Edmonton, and uh, God called me to this, this junior high school. Uh, it was in a lower income part of our city, um, filled with kids, and, and it broke my heart because these kids were stuck in just cycles of brokenness. Um, lots of abuse, lots of uh, poverty, lots of substance abuse, uh, family breakdown. Um, and I just came into this situation, and, and I recognized that this was a cycle. And there was nothing that I, as an individual, no matter how much I loved these kids, no matter how much I cared, no matter how much good advice or time I invested into their lives, that was going to actually be capable of changing their circumstances. We're talking, you know, third generation of people living in these types of circumstances. You cannot out-love uh, that. Uh, this is a reality. It is... Uh, extremely hard when someone is going through a cycle that has been lived out by their parents and their grandparents and their grandparents before them. They don't know anything different. In fact, they're probably not capable of knowing anything different. And it was easy for me in that situation to become completely uh, disillusioned and overwhelmed. But then I remembered something. I'm not supposed to change them. I'm not supposed to heal them. But I know the person who can do that. I know the person who can meet them in that state of brokenness and so transform their hearts and so transform the course of their lives that they can step out of decades, generations, cyclical abuse and neglect and become someone who is loving and self-giving and able to continue to contribute to the greater body. You see, the, the reality of the gospel, the, the gospel is this message that Jesus has come to do what we cannot. And the beauty of that is that on one hand, it humbles us, because there's a lot of people in this room, myself included, who have a tendency to want to be world-changing type of people. You know, you hear a problem, and this is like husband 101, Right? You hear your wife telling you a problem, and you're like, Phew, lady, let me tell you all the ways to fix that. It <laughs> uh, doesn't generally work in my favor, uh, probably not yours either. But we have a tendency, and I think a lot of us in this room have this desire to see people transform. We look at areas of brokenness in someone's life, and we think, man, I just, I just don't want that for you. You hear someone who comes from an abusive background, and they get into another abusive relationship, and you think, man... Like, there's ways that that can change. Why do you keep going back into that? And you sit and you talk and you share and it doesn't seem to do anything. And yet, suddenly, this person meets Jesus. And they are completely and utterly transformed in ways that you could never have done on your own. It humbles us. No matter how good you think you are, no matter how awesome you think you are at saving people, at changing them, at giving them the right advice, ultimately, you can't fix them. At the same time, it actually encourages us. It keeps us from despair because, uh, like me, when I was with Westlawn, I, I felt this weight. 
I could see all these fractured relationships all around me. And I felt that. And maybe you're here in this room and you have a, a, a weight of people who are hurting, who are broken, who need transformation. And you feel that weight on your shoulders. And yet the gospel takes that weight off and puts it squarely on the back of Jesus. It reminds us that we cannot fix them, cannot change them. We can't even fix and change ourselves, as we're going to talk about later today, but that Jesus can. And so for us, when we do something like a child dedication, you know, Shannon and I, we're coming before you guys as a church and all the other families here, and they're super cute kids. <laughs> And, and, and this isn't just simply us saying, hey, man, we are going to like convert our kids and they're going to follow Jesus and do all these good things. No, we're actually humbly saying, man, we know we cannot do that. I know that I am a broken, prideful, sinful, unloving person and that chances are that if my daughter observes my life, lives in my household, she will uh, get those things. And the best thing that I can do in this moment is bring her to Jesus. And that is freeing. I don't have to carry the weight of my daughter's future. I can actually trust that there is a God who is more loving of her than I am, who is capable of transforming her. All right, let's dive in here. So it says that uh, some men brought a paralyzed man lying on a mat, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are are forgiven. Now, just imagine for me if, if this was you, okay? So maybe you were born with paralysis, like you were born and your legs didn't work out of the womb, or you, you know, were silly and decided to like dive in soup potholes and you hit your neck and broke it and you're paralyzed. Uh, but uh, whatever the, the reason is, uh, you've, you've experienced this for a really long time. Imagine what you would try and do to, to find some measure of healing. You know, you're going to all the best doctors, you're, you're going to the specialists, Finally, in a great feat of desperation, you're like, I'm going to try that Chinese alternative medicine stuff, and, and nothing works. And some friends come along, and they say, hey, dude, I don't know what's going on, but there's this guy, he's kind of weird, but he seems to have some power, and you get a little bit of hope. And you come, and there's this guy, and he looks you in the eye, and he says, not... I'm healing you, but your sins are forgiven. Does that not sound a bit like a jip? I'm serious. Like, you're like, Jesus, obvious problem. Like, can we handle this? But, but here's the thing, and I think it's something that we should not miss. You see, this, this man thought his ultimate issue was not being able to walk. And his friends thought his ultimate issue was not being able to walk. And when he meets Jesus, Jesus actually reveals to him that his ultimate issue is something called sin. Now, some of us have grown up in kind of a church setting. And so we hear this word a lot, sin, and we kind of like associate it with like evil or bad things. Uh, but, but it's a little bit more nuanced than that. I, I think sometimes we can, we can look around and be like, well, Hitler, sinner, that guy is straight to hell. But everyone else, you know, if you're kind of a good person, like you're probably doing good and you're, you're all right. 
sin originally was a, an archery term, and it meant to miss the mark. So uh, to miss the mark. And by the time that Jesus arrived, that, that term had come to encapsulate anything that came above God. Author, scholar, and pastor Tim Keller, he describes sin this way, and I think it's very helpful for us. He says, sin is building your life's meaning on anything. So again, sin is building your life's meaning on anything, even a very good thing more than on God. There's an ancient Christian thinker, his name is Augustine. And he, he describes sin as a set of disordered loves. I think this is something that even if you're here and you're like, man, this whole God thing, I don't know, that I think, think we can kind of see is, is relevant to, to our society. You see, when our loves are disordered, when we elevate something in our affections above something else, that thing has power over us, and it actually causes us to act in certain ways. I'll give you an example. A couple, uh, several months ago, my, my wife Shannon and I, we were at a uh, conference down in Spokane, and it was this conference with all these, like, cool, like, church planning types, and I, you know, I, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, like, the person who always, like, is, like, craving for attention, but I do like to be respected in sort of people that I respect. I, I want them to think well of me, and uh, we had some miscommunication as we were driving into the city. It was in Spokane. Uh, we had never been there before together, and so uh, we missed a turn. We ended up showing up a bit late, and we parked, and I was so angry at Shannon, and all of this, like, vitriol came out of me, and I was, like, uh, just giving her attitude. I, like, slammed the door. I, like, walked away in front of her. Like, it was really bad. And Jen, please, wherever you are, don't hit me. <laughs> Um, and, and as I had a chance to, um, to process it later in the, in the week with uh, one of the, the guys who was leading the conference, his name's Steve, um, he sat down and we were just diving through it and he helped me recognize something. You see, in that moment, there was something that my heart loved more than my wife. And we can call it a couple of different things, but the way I, I would say it is that I needed significance and recognition. For me, in that moment, that was where my love was at. I, I cared so much about coming in and being seen as the man, part of the crew, that when my wife somehow got in the way of that, all this garbage spilled out of me. Why was that? Because this thing had so captured my love and captured my heart that anything that got in the way of it had to pay the price. Maybe for you, you're like, man, I'm a great husband and I never yell at my wife. Um, praise Jesus if that's you. Uh, but I think most of us have kind of gotten to these points. You see, if you love, say, your reputation more than you love integrity, when it seems like your reputation is uh, going to be attacked, you're going to lie your face off. If you love money and stuff more than you love people, just imagine what that looks like when they come over to your house. You're not going to want them to touch anything. They're not going to be hospitable because they might wreck your stuff. How about this one? If you love pleasure, personal satisfaction more than you love your spouse, 
what's that going to lead to? It's going to lead to all kinds of relational damage because you're going to pursue things that actually get in the way of your relationship, that destroy it. And the crazy thing is, is that we sometimes get to this point where we recognize that this is true, and yet we can't stop it. I know I have some selfish tendencies, and I know that they actually do harm to the people around me. And yet, I feel like when push comes to shove in that moment, even though I'm aware this thing has such a hold over me, man, I don't know how to change it. If you're in the room today and you're like, I get what you're saying, but I'm not sure how this relates to God. Let me pose an imaginative question. Just imagine with me if, if you can. Pretend that the world was created by uh, a very personal, very loving creator, and he intricately designed it to function in a certain way. And, and one of the chief pieces of that design is that human beings were to live in such a way that demonstrated his design for the world to flourish. And so we were called to cultivate, to love, to rule over. Now imagine what would happen if those same human beings one day said, oh, we're going to try a different way. Now remember, God is in this imaginative scenario, the one who's created all the pathways. He's created how things work. And then suddenly some person comes up and says, yeah, but I think I got a better way, God, even though we are actually part of the system. What would happen? Well, I submit to you that what would happen, it would be like a train that goes off its tracks. You know, it's chugging along, it's carrying what it needs to carry, it's supposed to go where it's supposed to go, but what happens when a train comes off its tracks? It leaves utter destruction in its wake. And I submit to you that the reason that we look around and see so much ruin in our world, economic, environmental, interpersonal, even self-destructive room is because we are a set of trains that have come off our tracks. And here is what Jesus is addressing in this moment. He comes to this man and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. What, what's he doing in that moment? saying, son, your train has come off its track and I've come to put it back on. The man comes and, and he thinks his ultimate issue is his paralysis. And Jesus says, your ultimate issue is something much, much deeper. It, it is funny, I think, that in our, our culture, even in our church, we often elevate things to ultimate issue status. It's how the, we talk about this sometimes, the prosperity gospel movement has uh, come to be. The best good that we think we can have is like health, wealth, and happiness. And, and none of those things in and of themselves are bad things, but again, when we elevate them to ultimate things, when we disorder our love so that these things become greater than God, and it actually leads to all kinds of destructive behaviors, but our proclivity is to constantly look for something else 
to fix the problems that we see. And so we play this if-only game. If only I were to win the lottery and I had all that money, I would be truly happy. And yet, if you look at any story of someone who's won the lottery, almost every single person has said, I wish this had never happened to me. If only I could find the right person. And you find that person, they seem so awesome, they're beautiful, they love you. And then they change because they're a human being. And you change. And you think, oh, well, maybe this wasn't the one. What do you do? You get divorced, split up, go your separate ways, find another person. Oh, guess what? That person is a human being. They also suck. A uh, little, um, little, little moment here. Um, <laughs> If you're constantly going through relationships and you're like, man, everyone else sucks, it might be time to look in the mirror. <laughs> uh, but here's the reality, is, is we, we crave this love and this relationship, and yet somehow this person never makes it work. We had the chaos of a bunch of kids up on stage, and so if you're a parent, maybe you get into this cycle of like, man, if only my kids behaved better, if only they did the right things, then my life would be so much more fulfilling. People would be like, oh, he's such a great parent. Like, we're going to go to him for advice or her to advice. And your kids grow up and they learn things and become better behaved. And then they get into other problems and other issues. And they move out and they have the kids of their own. And it just never quite fulfills you the way that you thought it would. It never quite satisfies you. How about this one? If my spouse only did this, how many people have had that thought, right? If my significant other only did this, and you go to counseling, and they figure it out, and then you find something else that they're not good at. Here's my point. When we continually try to meet our, our deep need, which is a disordered love, which is a, a lack of putting God first, it actually filters down at everything else. And, and what happens is when we're starting, starting to pursue these other things, it actually causes further breakdown and further destruction. In some ways, we try and inoculate ourselves from the pain. You know, we, we have social media. We have so many things that can entertain us. All this stuff, though, it's like trying to treat your leg getting cut off with Tylenol. Uh, that, I mean, that sounds like a ridiculous image, but, but just think about it. You're, you're bleeding out, and, and what you're feeling is pain. I'm like, well, I know how to deal with the pain. I'm going to take some Tylenol. But you're still going to die. You're still bleeding out. Maybe you don't feel it anymore, but it's still there. See, I, I think that we have such an aversion to difficult experiences, and yet I want to pose for us this question. What if those are actually symptoms? What if this man's paralysis wasn't simply, you know, a random act of evilness? What if it was something that was meant to bring him to this very moment where he comes face to face with Jesus and actually has his ultimate issue dealt with? Symptoms are important. They... Uh, this story that took place a couple of weeks ago, 
that uh, Chris led us through is a story of this man who was healed from leprosy. Leprosy is not a disease that we have a lot of today, but it was very debilitating back in the first century. It's primarily debilitating because what it did is it damaged your nerves. And so you wouldn't be able to feel things. And so what would happen is you're walking around, you get a cut. You don't feel it, you don't notice it, and it gets infected. And you still don't feel it, and you still don't notice it. And so it never gets dealt with. And it festers and becomes infected, and it goes gangrene, and suddenly your whole arm is like rotting because you never dealt with this one issue. Let me ask you this. If you're here and, and, and you're like, man, I don't, I don't know about God, I, I want to submit to you to ask, how do you deal with the idea of pain and suffering? I have wrestled with this question a lot. It seems so disgusting that we live in a world where we have so much technology, so much knowledge, and yet we're seeing death tolls rise seeing injustice at some of its greatest points. Maybe not here in Victoria, but globally. And so how do you deal with that? And how do you deal with the pain that you cause other people? Is it just meaningless? And what if all of this is actually like a pain symptom? And it's, it's actually there by God's grace to, to help us understand there's something deeper that needs to be dealt with. It's like getting cut and feeling that pain to let you know, hey, there's, there's something more going on that needs to, to be dealt with here. So what Jesus does is he comes and, and this man has come to him because he has a symptom. My legs don't walk. And yet Jesus says, hey, I know the ultimate problem. is that you don't know who you're supposed to love. And he forgives him. We don't have time to jump into this idea of forgiveness, but what I do want to say here really quick is that Matthew intentionally in this point does not tell anyone how Jesus forgives them. Like, what happens here? Is this just like magical incantation? Your sins are forgiven. No. No. You see, if we go back to Matthew chapter 8, there's this quote that Matthew uses, uh, and he quotes this, this old ancient seer named Isaiah. And Isaiah is looking at what Jesus is doing in the future. He's saying, man, he's healing people. But he goes on to say, by your stripes are we healed, meaning Jesus, by, by Jesus' own suffering. You see, we can recognize the problem. And we can even recognize our incapability of fixing it. But that doesn't really help at all. The only thing that can change it is if this forgiveness actually transforms us and makes us into a new person. I uh, was trying to think of a, a metaphor that made sense, and this is what I came up with. It's like uh, someone coming who has like a, a devastating like heart issue where it's actually, instead of pumping blood, it kind of pumps 
poison throughout your body. So everything that you do is kind of, uh, is kind of uh, poisonous. Like it's, it's a tainted. And yet Jesus comes and he has this perfect heart and it gives perfect blood. And he gives up his perfect heart and gives it to us and takes our disgusting, poisonous heart into himself. And later in Matthew, Matthew's actually going to make this claim that this is exactly what Jesus is doing on the cross. You see, our, our rebellion, our going off the tracks that leads to such devastation had to be dealt with. And the only way that was possible was for God himself to come and intervene. For him to literally he put himself in the way of the runaway train, take that full force to stop it, and drag it back onto the track so it could run again as it was meant to. And Jesus took the full weight of that upon himself. He took our rotten heart into himself, and it eventually led to his death. But that was not the end of the story. And so what happens when this forgiveness takes root in our life? Well, the Bible uses this metaphor that we are like a transformed person, a new person. I'll give you a couple of different examples of what might take place. We're finally able to love our family without obsession. You know, we love them and care for them, and we're not so needy with them. Because ultimately, we know that we've been adopted as sons and daughters of God that he is the true family, that we get to live in light of him. We can take criticism without devastation. Why? Because we know that our life is not being judged ultimately by other people, but it has been judged by God. And God looks at me and he looks at you and he doesn't see our broken, rotten hearts. He sees the perfect, pure heart of Jesus. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. We can enjoy work without being consumed by it because it does not give the source of our meaning because our ultimate source of meaning is God. And so we can put it down and say that we can rest. Why? Because we know that the world is not in our hands and that our meaning does not come from what we do, but from who we are, which is in light of what he has done and who he is. And we can pursue justice without disillusionment, knowing that we have been called to demonstrate what God is like, and at the same time, knowing that he ultimately is the one who is restoring all things. As we finish off here, I want to point us to three different responses that Matthew records to Jesus. And I'm going to try and do this quickly because I have like six and a half minutes here. So first one is what I would call the religious response. If you have your Bibles, you can read it. It says uh, in verse 3, at, at this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. As I mentioned earlier, we don't use that word blaspheming a lot, so I'm just going to give us a definition. Uh, one of the scholars I read as I was studying for this, his name is David Turner, he, he describes blasphemy this way. He says, blasphemy is, sland is the slandering of God by either re reviling his name or pretending to do what he alone can do. It says that Jesus knew their thoughts and asked them why they entertain evil thoughts. What's going on here? There are uh, some of us here today, and we have grown up in the church, and we kind of think we know how this whole, like, God thing works. We have our, our checklist of, yeah, you know, read my Bible every day, say some prayers, participate in my church family, give faithfully, all this kind of stuff, right? Do good things, be a good neighbor. Uh, 
And Jesus coming into this scene with these people who are, are super religious, and they're like, Jesus, we know how the forgiveness thing works. We're like experts in the law. You have to go to the temple, and you kill a lamb, and then your sins are taken away. And the Son of God, literally God in human form, is standing right in front of them, and he's saying, look, all these things that you have been doing, which are ultimately pointing to me, are coming to be fulfilled, and you're missing it. We cannot get so consumed in religion that we miss the fact that there is a God who has come not just for everyone else, but for us. And that's the ironic thing in this moment. Jesus is actually doing something in front of them so not just this guy who's paralyzed can understand who he is. What does he say? He says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus is doing this act graciously in front of these people so that they know that they too need to be forgiven. So we have an opportunity to put aside any sense of our own religious accomplishment and to recognize that I and you also need to come to the feet of Jesus and be transformed. There's a second response here. It's the response of the paralytic. It says that he said to this, the paralyzed man in, in verse 6, get up, take up your mat, and go home. Listen to this, verse 7. Then the man got up and went home. Now just imagine, again, if you were paralyzed, how, how much faith it would take in that moment to even try and move your leg. Like how much fear would be built up in that single action. You're told, get up and walk. It's not that easy. Like this man has lived with this thing. It has defined him. It has been so part of his past. Does he even know how to walk? Maybe he never did. In that moment, he had to take a step of faith. He had to actually accept what Jesus was saying about him was true and to move on from this. There are some in this room and you have actually encountered Jesus and he's come into your life and he's transformed you. And you're still living in the same patterns of brokenness. Maybe there's past pain and it still defines so much of who you are. Maybe it's people who have hurt you and you're holding on to unforgiveness and you won't do certain things and you won't trust certain ways because, man, these people have so defined you and it's like they have these claws and they're still sunken into your flesh. But Jesus has come and he said, your sins are forgiven. Move on from that. And the challenge for you today is to pick up your mat and walk. To know that you have been freed. That you can live differently. That you have a new heart. It's a final response that's recorded in, in, it's recorded in verse 8. It's the response of the crowd. It says that when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. The, the literal uh, term there is phobios. It's a Greek term and it, it kind of gets translated as awe sometimes. But, but kind of the, the deeper sense is like fear. Like, they're looking at this, and they're like, this is crazy. 
Like, I don't know what to make of this, and it's a little bit freaky. But they praise God who had given such authority to man. And that word man is actually plural. It's mankind. And I think many of you here today might be the crowd. Maybe you've seen some cool things. You've seen some good things, some God things. And you're like, oh, that's, that's really cool. Like, there's some benevolent force out there. There's, like, good people. Mother Nature has uh, been real good to us this year. And it's actually God. And, and you're like, yeah, there's, there's something good out there. And yet what the crowd misses is that God wasn't just giving such authority to mankind. He was actually giving himself to mankind. The authority that they saw was in Jesus, was in God coming down and becoming one of us. And maybe you've experienced some really cool, amazing God moments in your life, but Jesus' challenge for you is not to miss that this isn't just good people, good things, even a good benevolent force. This is an actual personal God who stepped into your reality and invites you into transformation. The invitation of Jesus is to recognize that he is the unique answer to our ultimate problem, which is a sin problem. Because each of us has, at different points in different ways, disordered our loves in such a way that causes devastation. We have gone off the tracks. We have a sick heart that needs to be transplanted. I want to invite the band to, to come up as I finish off here. The beautiful reality of who Jesus is is that he did not just arbitrarily come and walk around, do some good things, and just say, I forgive your sins, but he literally took them upon ourselves, upon himself. There's a saying, I believe it's in John chapter 13, it says that we love God because he first loved us. When Jesus comes and he forgives us, he's inviting us to reorder our loves around him, to make him once again our ultimate love that defines the rest of the loves behind us. And when that happens, it transforms us, and it transforms the people around us. 